How do you pace and forge a drama about the women who took down Fox News boss Roger Ailes? Director Jay Roach and editor John Pohl are here to tell us on Crew Call. So this particular this particular film, what in your opinion made it cinematic? What propelled this one not not to go to like HBO or, or streaming? Yeah, well, this came to me a different way. Um, Recount was my first uh, kind of drama, and it came to me by Sidney Pollack, who who had was thinking about directing it, and and then once I got to do that one, and he and he couldn't direct it, he got sick, and and there was a really a uh, really uh, surreal yeah. situation where he, he's telling me, I want you to do this. He's a hero of mine in a major way. I want you to do this film, but uh, it's because I'm sick. And I, and so he talked me into taking it over. And the HBO things then became their own great you know opportunity to tell these kinds of stories. This one came to me from Charlize, who I'd been working with on a, on a this um, this TV idea and hadn't quite figured it out. And I, I just was hooked on it originally by what the predicament felt like. I had known about Megyn Kelly a little bit and watched her take on Donald Trump. I had heard a lot about Gretchen and I was there when Roger was fired in Cleveland at the convention. So, of course, I just I'm always wanting to find out what goes on in those rooms. Charlize, the fact that Charlize was involved was was a whole new a whole new level. I was actually, frankly, surprised she asked me to directed i was on the phone just helping her as a friend i didn't think i didn't know if she thought of me as that i don't know she's like a academy award-winning major dramatic actress i just i don't know i'm it's not faux humility i actually wondered are you asking me to direct you in a in a big movie and so of course i was going to say yes and then once we got nicole and and margo and john uh, lithgow and kate mckinnon allison janney uh, rob rob delaney mark Duplass. i mean just this long cast that's what made it cinematic to me was, oh, I'm going to have this level of talent in the room. I'm going to shoot oppositional angles. Everyone's going to be on all the time and they're going to all be stepped up for, to that level, you know, all together. And, and so it just felt like a fantastic story and a great predicament and, a, and some of the some, you know, more talent than has, gets to be in a lot of movies together, you know. Uh, so that's, that was pretty easy to... To say yes to it. Now, had she already honed down the script with Randall? Not much. I think I think Charles wrote a great script that he had developed at Annapurna, uh, you know, with a lot of support there on a risky project. Um, him and Margaret Riley, his producer and manager, uh, had worked on it for several months. They sold it right after, um, right around the time of the election in, in uh, late summer, fall 2016. And he'd worked on it and given it to Charlize in the fall of 2017. She had kind of sat on it for a little while and wasn't jumping in. And it wasn't until she sent it to me that she decided she'd. And I, I will take some small credit in saying, you have to do this. This is a really interesting project. She was hesitant and, you know, didn't necessarily uh, sort of link up politically with with Megyn Kelly and, and was wondering if she could do it justice. And, um, and I explained to her, I, I just think you have to, because it's, it's an opportunity to make the issue of sexual harassment a little less partisan. <laughs> you know, Megyn Kelly's famously said, I'm not a feminist, you know, and doesn't, and try, you know, doesn't like the word feminist. And here she is. And, you know, especially Gretchen, who really took the biggest risk up front. Also, you know, on a conservative network, taking on one of the most powerful conservative 
people, you know, in our country, but certainly one of the most uh, powerful titans of media. And with without the support that some of the women got a, a year later, once the Me Too thing, they didn't. The Me Too thing wasn't up to that speed. It was going on, but it wasn't wasn't this radical movement and it, this great movement uh, in summer 2016. So I just said, Charlie, this is we can we can open up this conversation you, with you you know, driving us through your character and these other great female leads, if I can just help give you a chance to, to, to raise that voice, raise your voice and ask other people to join you, you know, and speak out uh, with, through this movie, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm in. So the interesting thing is sitting on the outside, writing about this project. Um, I wrote when Lionsgate was jumping on this yeah, and I was, I was, I was in London reporting when everything was going down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a crazy, a crazy time. Um, and I'm gonna, we'll talk a little bit about that. But was it always? It was always the in was always through Megan, wasn't it? I always thought it was the in was always going to be through Gretchen. Well, the so because Charlize was the kind of key attaching detachment talent that that uh, that Annapurna and Charles were going for, it was going to be. At least Megan, um, you know, Megan centric to the extent that she was our the only star attached at the time. But the story was always written with that balance between Megan Gretchen and, and Margot's character, Kayla, who's a composite fictional right. character. Um, but I will say that what made it tough in Gretchen's situation was Gretchen had an NDA and couldn't talk about her story. Megan had already written a book about it. She had in her in her book um, she wrote. Uh, a whole section devoted to what happened with her and Roger. So we had, Charles had, and this is way before I got involved, Charles had that story and all the details of it. And he had no details from the Gretchen story because she, she was, she signed the NDA. It's one of the things that makes it interesting that we chose to recently, we should talk about how we got to this editorially to end the film differently from the script. And it wasn't knowing that the NDA issue was going to be coming up at NBC and Fox now, and we now end the film with Gretchen being told she gets the settlement and the apology. But they say, but you're going to be muzzled. And she says, maybe. And that's what's happening right now. She's pushing Fox to release her from her NDA. And so hopefully she can come out and and all the other women can come out and tell the details of her story. That was, that was just, uh, I don't know, just kind of sensing what matters in this story. And, and we, we sort of got to that that this might be what because it is the core of one of the big problems in harassment situations is that the companies make employees sign contracts that require forced arbitration no court case so none of it comes out and forced ndas so the women even if they or if they settle and they're sort of pressed to they don't talk to each other about what's going on so you know they never find out from each other that this predation this this abuse of power and abuse of, of these women has been going on and that's that was amazing to uh it's been amazing to, to stir the conversations in our screenings you know um so yes yeah, so that was that was part of it a few, just a few more questions on the film and b- yeah. before we get to the ed- before we get to the editing the um i know i know that you talk with my editor-in-chief about the ndas very extensively and how this was how you know there was some consulting but it wasn't like having the sources right on your shoulder right kind of you know well, so especially that it, at the beginning yeah but the studio when like when Lionsgate came on board is this kind of like 
like it is with us journalists where we have to fact check things. Are you guys also in the same position where if you're putting out a movie about real people, yes, most of which are on public public account, Mm -hmm. you, I don't know, you're also forced to be liable or the studio needs to check this through and kind of lawyer it and go through the the script? There were a lot of legal reviews all the way through. Um, because they're, you, you know, they're, they legally want to make sure, um, we're not slandering anybody, uh, or, uh, you know, or, or making up anything that's, that's irresponsible, you know, but from us, for our big obligation is to just get the story right. It is a little different from journalism because we're, we're relying on journalists mostly. We're, Charles, when he wrote the script, was mostly relying on a whole slew of books, all the news that great journalists had covered. And he wrote the script without much first person, you know, a primary sourcing. I had done so many of these films. And I think some of the studio, sometimes the studios are reluctant to get into interviewing primary sources because of life rights issues and and there was a uh, some for some reason there's a little bit of reluctance in the uh at Annapurna to to say okay so we we there and it was also a bumpy ride uh, for a little while as you, you know you covered with um with them but they were amazing at letting us run with the story and then they finally said yeah go for it and then we just went full tilt and tried to talk to as many women as we could with their with their you know authorization and Perna's authorization, and I just scrambled to, to and Charles too, both of us to talk to a couple dozen people you know who um, had insight into the story, and they helped us authenticate it, but also find layers of storytelling, layers of detail, layers of, layers of personal pain and and trauma that you just, that we just weren't getting from the media accounts, and that goes into scenes like the one with Kayla. And Roger go, went into the whole weather lady story because we didn't right. know that story. Right. You know, and she was a key. Uh, she, yeah, was she was a key was player. A key and we found that out, uh, you know, she, she was revealed later because she wrote a book, uh, Janice Dean, that she was kind of instrumental in having a list of women who she thought were had been harassed by Roger. And she was telling Megan about it so Megan could help bring the women together when they really weren't supporting each other yet. Uh, they were, Gretchen was just waiting for somebody to speak up on her behalf. Anyway, we... We do have an obligation, I think, because the audience um, reads that the film is inspired by a true story. But they, but it is just inspired by. It's not. It's clearly as as Charles and I say to each other over and over. You know, it's it's a painting, not a photograph. We can't t- really do a documentary, or especially we can't take you back in time and cover a full year and and hundreds of characters and and actually do all of that justice in a two-hour movie. But you can make it authentic and you can commit to getting the story right and trying to just honor what these women went through in a, in a somewhat more impressionistic way. And so inspired by, though, you expect some authenticity. You, you, you deserve that. You paid for the film based on hearing that it's based on a true story and that it's covering characters you know and all these famous newscasters. So we don't take that lightly. We work really hard to cross-corroborate as much of the research as we've done and also as much of the different stories from all different sides. We interviewed people on Roger's team, too. Megan and Gretchen, were they ever approached? They were both approached. Both were, you know, Gretchen couldn't talk to us at all. Mm-hmm. We tried to talk through the lawyers. There was a whole long story of trying to get, um, and uh, we we tried to get to to 
Megan, but she, you know, I think rightly, um, we didn't, it's not the Megan Kelly authorized biography, you know, so there, there was so much in her book that we had access to that we didn't try to fold her into the ongoing process of making the film. Um, I'm always about the journey and mounting a production and everything. Um, I got the sense outside looking in that you guys were shoot after Annapurna departed, that you guys were already in production. I got that sense. So, and then, and then Lionsgate quietly came in. I mean, they were in, it was a, I wish it was that I'll do, I'll make I mean, this quick. They I, were like, I, I get, they were I like quickly a, get on a, yeah. a, a podium about this, but it was much more traumatic than that. And, and, uh, and, um, I don't know what the right word was. Just like we were falling to our deaths. I mean, we were, we had been, the plane had blown up. We were going down, you know, we weren't, there was no, there was no real hope. No. So we found out about Annapurna pulling out. And and again, I, they did such a great job developing it. They also helped us make the transition. I have have so much respect and admiration for them and what they, what they did to get us launched, but they had some corporate high up, you know, reorganization two weeks from when we started shooting. I was on a tech scout. We'd already been greenlit at a very, we'd been whittling the budget down for months. We got to a very hard and acceptable budget, which we hard only because we had to, you know, be disciplined about getting it down. They greenlit it at that number. We never went a penny. I know it got reported in some places that we were, there was some budget issue. We were totally greenlit and signed on. Braun had come in for a little small amount of money to take some of the heat off, but we were set and greenlit fully kind of, we never went over budget. We never, the budget never went up a bit. It only came down. We started the movie at that point, but after we got dropped, it looked like we were dead. Charlize scrambled. Aaron Gilbert, who had been in it for a little bit, the head of Braun Studios, took this crazy leap of faith because of a great script, unbelievable cast that had all come together, tremendously well-organized the Coen brothers, uh, production team, uh, Bob Graff and, and Betsy Magruder and a whole uh, Karen Gretschel, like his incredible team from the Coen brothers. It was set to go. There was, there was just no way to stop us, except we blew up and had no... Re- I've been on a movie, Use Guys, many years ago that blew up and it never came back. So Charlize just became this fierce warrior goddess person that is the... the got on the phone. Just got on the phone, called all of her reps at WME. I have some reps at WME. They quickly, quickly put their whole operation into getting us back together. Aaron was just said, you know what? I'll just take it over. I'll just take over the cash flow, which we didn't know when it first happened. And he said, but we'll have to... I want to find a partner. And he helped with Charlize um, get... Uh, Lionsgate and within 72 hours we had our financier I know and Lionsgate a distributor of course then we were just joking about this earlier there were we our deals none of our deals closed until after the movie was finished but we just everyone went on faith and it's a huge credit to uh, to Lionsgate and Braun that they took the risk was there a little bit of a beauty contest were there other contenders we did talk to other studios and we had we had we did have a couple uh, of other really interested suitors but there was something uh, Lionsgate was so enthusiastic about it and said we don't we don't have anything like this and we want to do this kind of movie and they were you know Charlize had worked with Braun already on a couple films and they were just really into being in business with her and you know we pitched it to to multiple places but they really jumped in hard and quick and we didn't have time we we hit our start date we hit our finish date we finished every single day early a very accurate RDP is like a wizard and he's so fast 
And we just stayed on the schedule and and never we still stayed under budget the entire process. That's what that was the only thing about that story that happened back then. I don't know if that was to try to damage control what happened or why that story got floated, but we were never over budget. This this is like a thriller. And and just tell just tell me about building this. I gotta think you had I'm making this up, five hundred hours worth. Of, of 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 shooting material to whittle down to two hours. Probably something like that. But. Tell me about keeping this at a rat-a-tat pace. Well, okay. So first of all, when I first read the script, when Jay first sent it to me, I read it watching and feeling um, Recount and Game Change. Because if you remember Recount, that's a movie we all knew how it ended, yet the entire time it played like a thriller. So I'm just seeing it through the eyes of Jay making this movie and knowing it's a thriller. And then... Game Change was a movie about a character who most people, many people might not like. And Jay treated her with incredible empathy and made her a human being who we could empathize with, not laugh at. And you could, I could see those two things coming together, and I knew that was the movie we were going to try and make. Um, you know, beyond that, it's a movie with 220 scenes, and mm-hmm. when you read it, it's, you know, it's like a house on fire. And then... What was fascinating about the film, and different for me than many other movies, is the half dozen bigger scenes in the film all came together. They got a lot of attention early on, but they all came together very well. And they were so well performed, so well written, so well directed, that the emotional content in those was kind of intact pretty early on. And a lot of our time after that was spent finding the best way to begin the movie, as Jay talked about, finding the best way to end the movie. And we tried so many different things for a long time. We felt like no matter what we started with, uh, it was unfair to whichever woman started. For a long time, we were trying to start with the Gretchen lawyer scene, which was a long sequence, which is still in real one. But it was very hard to have not seen her in context on, t- on the TV in the world before that. And we ended up basically there were two separate times where Jay came in after a weekend you know, trying to figure out what we should do. And he said, okay, let's try starting the movie this way. Then this was a month or two after the let's try ending the movie this way. And they were both brilliant moves. But imagine that there were 50 of those in there of moving things around. Now, that doesn't really relate to pace in any way. But the movie, we were never trying to make the movie fast. Um, but we were just trying to make the movie play emotionally. And... I think it just lends that pace. A movie tells you what you should do if you're honoring the performances and the story. And I kind of think that's what we did. I don't think yeah, we I remember ever spoken about time. it. No, we did talk about it at the very beginning because I oh, yes. I had a, you know, Charles Randolph did The Big Short and there was a certain kind of aggressive cutting. And I thought, well, we're gonna, we were shooting so much footage and, and lots of cameras all at the same time. And there was clearly going to be an opportunity to to speed it to, to cut quickly if we wanted but it actually went the other way i first told john just don't just don't be afraid to be super aggressive the cutting i don't mind jump cuts just like go for it and he did exactly what i asked and i watched it and i went oh whoa whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> i don't know what i was asking the first for. week the first yeah. weekend i was i was shooting and i i said i said you know what there's so much great performance, and this is why I, I work with John. I should have just never said anything because he would have had the instinct to do what we ultimately did was trust that these 
women are in such an incredible predicament and they're so it's sort of inevitable that they're going to these things are going to go this way but it's so much more compelling than you expected because of how they're performing and let those moments play especially let the super awkward ones like the roger kayla scene or the scene where uh megan confronts kayla about you know did he harass you and let the let the let the suffering the pain the 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 trauma of it make the audience experience that make them let them empathize with it and stay with the shots longer than sometimes even than you normally would just to to ask the audience to go to think i thought i knew what she was going through but holy hell what she's going through is way past what i understood this to be and now i i feel like i understand what she's up to a little more than i did so we actually from the beginning at least started mm-hmm kind of slowing it down. But what John does so well is we're shooting all that footage, but I get to come in and he's already winnowed down and his take selection is so excellent that I very rarely find another take that I've, oh, this is a better performance. I almost always, when I go in the take searches, which I do, is the exact same take he chose. And his his taste for performance, a pace that's driven by performance, not by some stylistic thing. Is what I think is why a lot of those scenes play as well as they do. Was the way this film begins is so brilliantly. It's like a B plot to the main plot, but it's just a, such a great entree to Megan. Is the whole Trump dilemma? Right. Was that always scripted that way, or did you guys find that in the cutting room where you begin? It start. It's a because it starts. It's her. It's her against Trump. Yeah. You don't get the sense that she's a victim until. Mm-hmm. Everything starts percolating, and then she later on. There were um, a number of things that were quite different in the script about how it was going to start, and we we tried a lot of different things. The the idea of starting with Megan uh, right off the top in the limo, uh, you know, or actually with the broadcast where she says she reports on the the report that um, that um, Ivana Trump accused. Trump of rape in a in a divorce thing, and he's up. She finds out from Roger Ailes that he Trump is really upset about that. That why would you bring this up now? And it, and so you're thinking, wow, I didn't, I forgot. Megyn Kelly was already going after Trump even before the famous primary debate when she confronted him and about all the horrible things he had said to women. And I once I once we thought that could. I just felt like, oh, this is we're we're coming into this with her full tilt engaged with Trump, and and we're also saying the Trump Ailes story, Roger Ailes's kind of culty, misogynist, male centric thing, overlapped with the the Trump that we were about to find out about with the Billy Bush tape. That's a singularity. These two men had both accused by multiple women of harassing harassing women. Uh, ironically, in the political world, we're also super overlapped since now Trump is Rogers, not only his favorite guy to promote on Fox News, but is also their ratings cash cow. And then now Megan's going to take him on and and who this network star. So it was it just felt like, OK, we're going to say to the audience, hold on to, you know, we want you to wonder how's that going to work out right from the beginning. And the rest of the versions that were scripted or we tried along the way were more stylized. They were more kind of, you know, a little a little cooler maybe, but they weren't as dramatic, you know, just instantly compelling. And we we screen a lot. That's what we screen a lot. We show tons of uh, screenings to our friends and family. I like to run the focus groups and I just 
keep digging down. John's always trying new versions. He's very fast too, so we can try a lot of different things. And we we screen like once a week, you know, for for a hundred people throughout all of post. And so he's turning those around, and his wow. team is cutting sound. We don't do premixes. We just have this incredible system that he pioneered. Um, with uh, Nina Kawasaki too, who is our who is uh, you know our assistant, who also cut some of the scenes, and we just had a thing of just we want to show it. Well, what is, does this click? What's throwing you? What's taking you out? And we just kept trying it until trying versions until we found that. How many months did you do? Did you do we informal in, informal testing? We wrapped in December. We started screening it about twelve weeks later, and we did a whole bunch of friends and family screenings. We call them. We did one. For the studio uh, that's called my director's cut and then we just kept doing that wow. until about two months ago wow now with, with here's the thing there's the bad guy goes down these these women though they 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 see some sort a group of women see mm-hmm. some sort of justice in seeing him go down what was the in, what were you concerned about with the ending? I know you were very, 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 very sensitive to these female protagonists in this film. I know, I know, your wife said to you, "You better get this right." <laughs> but what what was how could this be insincere in the end? What was the concern? Well, you look. We're two men. Yeah. Charles is a you know a screenwriter, and I'm the director. John's a you know, but but what we we're, what we one thing we did right is we surrounded ourselves with collaborators who were almost like a, a vast a, a large number of them were women. I, probably if you did say like a majority because we had four women producers, tons of great female executives from the studios. All our female leads were on us to get it right. Um, Even had, all our assistants, all our, our everybody else in the cutting room, our additional editor, and. Yeah. Um, you know, we just we just chose to listen because the last thing we wanted to do was be mansplaining sexual harassment. Totally. You know, and yeah. we 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 wanted it to be an empathy machine, especially for men to to, to be required to pay to, to see it from a different point of view. But we we couldn't we were humble enough at least to know we weren't the authorities on this. We had to listen and listen and listen. And which is what we did in the focus groups too, by the way. The the this friends and family screenings. What I and I would. It wasn't just like twenty people. It's like I would have a hundred people throwing in, and who would all they'd sit watch the movie and stick around for an hour and talk about the movie, which that alone said a huge amount. Yeah. And there were interesting arguments, and uh, people often disagreed, but it was always it was always very valuable for us. It was a lot of lot of. Heated discussions, a lot really of heated great discussions. heated discussions. Yeah. Just and to sometimes set us straight, you know. And yeah. that was, but we uh, we invite that kind of uh, part of the reason ending on Gretchen for us saying maybe worked so well. And yes, obviously, long before the NDA thing became such a big deal, is it was a way of it was a way of finding a, a ray of hope at a, at an ending where you, so you didn't leave people feeling like there wasn't something that could happen. That could help us. These women didn't do this for nothing. And I don't think it ever felt like that before. But this, it just gave us, you know, a, a moment to consider that. But and but it would also was a mixed. There's a there's it's a very the, mixed. Yes. The tragic part of, of we're saying way too much. I hope you'll give a spoiler yeah. alert yeah. thing okay. at the beginning. But the, the, the tragedy of what went on at Fox to some extent is that women didn't feel free to stand up for each other right at the beginning. This was a year before Harvey again. 
Gretchen jumps off a cliff, thinks women were stand up, and then for two weeks, nobody stands right. up for her, right? So that was the suspense. And even after Megan did come forward and some of the other women, women went to the outside investigator, there still wasn't a kind of, hey, we did, all, we did this together. We just wanted a little bit of sense of hope but also an awareness that it's not at all mission accomplished. We're not saying we just want, hey, we want to just end with we got to talk about this. Let's, right. you know, and that's what that's what that ending. Yeah. Uh, that's why we we kept fishing until we. I think it. I think the maybe had people talking more. Yeah, actually. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the beginning, you know, you you asked about you know where that Megan stuff was. These are just numbers, but usually, you know, in continuity, you go basically through the movie and you do small restructures. Our first scene is number 44. Scenes three and eight or five and eight are in real three. Um, I mean, if you looked at our continuity, it's crazy. We put the pictures of the scenes still oh, on wow. the wall and we, we just wow. keep juggling them. And it, they were, Charles wrote a really fantastic script that had a tight flow when you read it, but it also was modular enough that it was set up to be elastic and and uh you wow. know, and and so it was it wasn't some kind of point by point by point by point historical right. linear and thing he, at all and he was amazing about that having worked with many writers and you know understandably it's their words he'd come into the cutting room and we'd show him stuff and he'd go oh that's great that's great yeah, I, was, I don't <laughs> think he ever you know if he felt like something wasn't working he would say something but he never had a sense of Oh, you changed it from my way. It was always let's experiment and let's find the right way through emotionally. It really writing, always was that. He kept writing. Once we, John and I found the reorder, he wrote a ton of great voiceover scenes, you know, that helped. He kept writing. I kept him in the cutting room as much as he could. He was in New York. So he would oh, fly wow. In. But he'd fly in for previews. We'd get all this great feedback. We'd show him what we want to try. We sometimes write some temp voiceover and have our assistants. One of our assistants got really good at imitating all of the women, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We record those lines and even play them sometimes in the previews until we could, you know, as temp lines. Sometimes Charles would say, what? what's that line? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who wrote that? But he would then rewrite it and yeah. fix it. And by the end, you know, the, the voiceovers changed a lot. The meaning of the story evolved even as we were shooting. So, wow. Uh, a lot of the voiceovers were flexible. And even Janice Dean, you know, that whole weather lady story, we were able to get her name into the movie through Charles writing some off-camera lines during post-production to, uh, to, oh, to tell that whole story. What are some darlings you left on the floor? Can you tell me? You know, you know what's interesting? This is the – I've worked on over 60 movies. This is the only time that it's now been a few weeks since we locked picture and dubbed the movie that I've never had a regret about – anything mm -hmm. okay I like hearing that. <laughs> so we're not going to see on the dvd any kind no. you, we don't expect to you see know, no because we didn't we for one thing because of the pace of it there actually isn't all that much but there there were some slightly i would say the only thing is that we we had a hunch going in that it could be a little more big short like and that there were more stylized fourth wall breaking kinds of things a lot of that stuff because of the performances because of how compelling the story was we found we didn't need to rely on style and and kind of um cleverness to carry the story the performances were so yeah. emotional that we we just kept going back to a, a bit more pure drama and a little less super stylized stuff or presentational stuff and again charles charles was smart to try all that but the story was 
the audience was clicking into it so directly, a lot of that stuff started to seem a little extraneous, you know. And so, if anything, the film just got closer and closer to, uh, you know, what was what the performances were demanding. The um, the Kayla scene with with Roger. Mm-hmm. Tell me about, you know, that that's a that's almost like the epicenter of the film. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you head into that and how you come out of that. What was key in terms of the pacing and the editing? Um, You know, when you're, when you're cutting the movie, as you're going, you're cutting a scene at a time. You're always as an editor. You always have to move in and move back out. And you usually don't, you know, until you've got the whole movie, you can't really move back out. So you're just, you're literally a scene at a time. And that, that scene, I just watched the film a lot and I don't know how else to put it, but I think, and I don't know if anyone else would agree with me, but I think to be an editor is to be kind of really just the first audience member. And it's kind of easy when you have performances like that. And I'm sitting there watching take after take. You could have made many different scenes out of this, but this seemed like, let's just play this out at real time. Uh, There's no reason to do anything to speed this up. The power is in the quiet. There's a long, long section with maybe one word. Um, And the scene just worked emotionally. It was very hard. You know, for me, when you sit back and when I sat back and watched it the first time, I was incredibly moved. I didn't know if anyone else would be. You know, I'm I'm the audience surrogate. (laughs) And I was very happy to show uh, the women in the cutting room the movie. And uh, we all just sort of sat there and... Uh, honestly, the scene in the end, as so many things changed, it didn't change that much because it was just all there. Jay directed it, gave these choices. You know, we adjusted a few things. But, you know, like I said earlier, the, the, the emotional performance things in the movie were so strong from the beginning because the material was so strong. There wasn't much need to unwind it. And as the movie got faster, like let's say, I'm guessing, let's say that scene is three or four four minutes long. It was four minutes long when the movie was much, much longer. And on a movie like this, if if those emotional scenes are, are still basically carrying their weight, they're, you know, in a movie with hundreds of scenes, you really feel it when you stop and you sit there for that long. And also like the scene with, um, with Kayla and Megan. Um, but the whole rest of the movie tends tends to fall into a rhythm that basically leaves you in those emotional moments wow. more. Yeah, they, wow. see, they stood out more because John kind of stepped up a lot of the storytelling. But that scene, he cut an incredible version. I wept openly when I saw it the first time because I, I knew it was good. I was in the room shooting it. Barry Aykroyd loves to shoot oppositional angles, which means there's no off-camera acting. Everybody's on camera all the time. There were two, and I didn't want to put Margot through that over and over and over. So I said, you know, I'll let's do a third camera. They go, well, we only have two operators. They go, you know, I used to be a camera operator. I'm gonna, I'll operate the third camera. And they didn't do a huge number of takes, and so there weren't all that many ways to, to do it. But the timing, John found. I kept trying to mess with things and play with it over time, and I always went back to that first cut because I, I, I just remembered how it was devastating. My wife watched it and just. She was inconsolable when she watched it the first time. It, it's just a it's a revelation for people who haven't been through that, and for people who have, it's a an acknowledgement that people are going to know now what 
they've been through. And, and uh, we had many times men would come up after and go, oh, my God, I didn't know that scene. I didn't know. But now I feel like I, I understand a little better. And it was John. That's just one of those things where you work with someone like him who, uh, who's got the sense of performance, sense of what matters. That's always, you know, we talk a lot about what matters about the scene. And the wide shot. And the wide shot. If you want to see that wide the shot, wide shot is a big, it's a big deal. Really long time I was afraid I was going to screw it up the whole time because I, I was so upset watching the scene. I was like, if I don't reframe in the middle of this cut because I'm watching it so closely, I've blown it. So I was, uh, I was trying it's, to manage my emotions. That shot is part of what makes you feel like you're watching something in real time and it's not being manipulated because you're just sitting there and John's yeah. telling his tale and. That's right. But Barry's operate, Barry operates oh. all the rest of it. All that elevator stuff and the teaser, all the way the camera is just perfectly in the right place. The focus is right. His documentary style operating is so good that it made sometimes editing easier because you just didn't, you didn't have to cut as much. You could just, the shot would evolve as yeah. he found it like a documentarian does. And um, that, I was and, always trying to find those connecting. And probably in the first cut, there were more of them. Yeah, but um, but he was his very stuff was amazing. You literally, you know, on, a, on most movies, on many movies, you know, the, the master setup is this shot and it doesn't change. And then the Apple setup is this shot and it doesn't change. And the Baker setup is this way. This you never know on any take <laughs> at any time what they're going to do. There's Barry's camera and another camera. And, you know, inevitably at the beginning, they start out a little wide. And then Barry had this amazing sense. There are so many little tiny zooms he would do that are in the movie now because he would do them at the perfect right moment. And yeah, that's rare. You know, you could start on this and this is also Jake, Jake talks about this a lot. All the actors have to be aware if I'm on you, but I'm panning over, everybody is probably on camera at all times. They yeah. are. They always are. And even the foreground person might suddenly come into the shot because Barry just decides to, <laughs> to go for that instead of the other person. Are we talking too much? No, 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 no. I wanted to squeeze in two more questions. Sure, two more questions. Get John in, talking. He's got. In, he's, in, I love hearing him. Talk. In relation to editing, and then the last, and then the last thing. You know, it's often said in editing. You know, coming out of a test, a, a test group, that if there's a problem, that if audiences have a problem with a particular scene. It's usually something you got to fix ahead of t- like a few scenes before ah. that the scene is actually a few scenes before. Mm-hmm. Were there any situations like that with this? It's I, I'm, I think, I'm assuming it's usually I think every time in terms you, of coherence you and watch clarity. the movie, you're sitting there and you feel the audience. And it doesn't matter if it's a comedy or a drama. You feel it. And afterwards, you talk about it. But you kind of already know. You could you could just stop and not talk about it. And you would feel where people had problems. They didn't, you know, if you move, like, like once we moved up um, all the Trump stuff to the beginning and Megan's tour of Fox, because that didn't used to be a title sequence for a while. Once that happened, other scenes that basically, that didn't change at all were playing better because you were ready for them. It actually helped Gretchen's character and because Gretchen had a very heavy dialogue, heavy scene that used to start the movie. Now we're waiting for her. What's she going to say instead of starting a story and stopping it. You know, you've, if you screen the movie, you learn because you feel the audience. Yeah. Was it always intended for Megan to begin? No. To give a tour? Scene no. 44. Oh. She, yeah, the Megan tour. Well, the Megan tour, tour was early-ish. Early-ish, but she was, it was, Gretchen was, the, the lawyer scene where Gretchen announces she's suing because that's what started the later thing was so important. 
that seemed at the time when we first started that that's what we should start with. It was we, but we started to realize that Megan getting herself in trouble with Trump was really compelling. So Gretchen up front was re- sort of trying to convince the audience this matters and this is stay with me for the. But it, it wasn't as just dramatic. I don't know how to explain it. it would do Megan Kelly attacking Trump in the primaries. That was dramatic. Megyn Kelly bringing up rape as a topic of discussion and while in the middle of a campaign. So by doing that, what you just said is a perfect question. A scene that was playing really well because Nicole's so great in it and we had that woman, uh, Rudy Bakhtar, being portrayed by Nazanin Boniati as the woman whose thoughts you can hear. That played infinitely better once the audience said, oh, I know what this movie's about. I know why I'm here. I know I'm, why I don't really want to figure out how this is going to work out. So they were so patient for this long scene about the legal strategy that, that Gretchen was going. So it's a really great example of how, you know, just messing with the order can vastly improve the audience's experience at a key moment in the film. So something, something I wanted to end the podcast with, and unfortunately, it's not that dramatic, uh-huh. <laughs> unfortunately, is I worked at Fox News Channel from 98 to 99. Wow. It was a year before I moved out to the West Coast to work at Variety. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of, for me, a transitional job. I, I started in film distribution. There's only so much entertainment mm-hmm. in New York. And I was connected, even though I'm blue and I vote blue, uh, I was connected through into there through a very heavy Republican contact. Yeah. And just... Got a job managing the newsroom, wow. doing a job I never did before. You're a little wow. like Kate McKinnon's character in the film, right? Yeah, and and basically, Were you sort of feeling like I, a closeted Democrat in the. Uh... Well, here's a, I'm going to set up the mood. So I reported to the news director. Again, this is still this is like I forget maybe two years after they launched. They yeah, were still yeah. very young. Mm-hmm. It's funny, even, and it was during Clinton impeachment. Mm-hmm. That was that was key that year, and. Here's the thing. I hired, I was involved in hiring production assistants and freelancers, writers and production assistants. But the one thing I never knew, the one thing I was never brought in on was how does someone become an anchor there? Right. Clueless about it. One girl I interviewed with, I think she could care less about being a production assistant. She wanted to be an anchor. Mm -hmm. And... I brought it to the attention of my boss and I was going to make her a production assistant. She's like, no, 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 this is a completely, I don't think, but nothing was ever revealed to me. The other Mm -hmm. thing I was never, as far as, even though I got, went on the second floor and I met with executives, I was never in Roger Ailes' circle. Mm -hmm. And the only two times that I had ever seen him was when he would come down and kind of give a corpse (laughs) Kind of like exactly as you show it in the movie. So this is why it resonates with me. You get the newsroom down to a T. You get those those upper floor news cubicle areas down to a T. I mean, it it felt it really resonated. Great, great. And then the only thing, and, and this is so deflated of me, at the time, I and again, I what I did was kind of like plugging holes and staffing and not really involved in content. Mm-hmm. But I never witnessed anything of like, yeah, I always equated it to the smoking man in X-Files, like a guy walking up going, hey, we're going to change what's on the air there. We need to, there was never, uh-huh. I never saw any of that. 
They were just ripping from the wires. They yeah. would rip from Reuters or um, typically Reuters, and sure. they would just rewrite it in speak. Sure. But again, after I left is when it really exploded to yeah. being – Yeah. I mean, it always was because he was there. It must have been an exciting time, though, because, you know, it was people even when it from the very beginning had a sense that, oh, this is going to shake the whole conversation up. You know, from their point of view, all this liberal media, all this dominant way of looking at the world, we're we are. It's like Kayla's speech. We're going to be the balance of this, even if we have to push it a little bit. And uh, he was he was a master of of. yeah, having his sense of what the public could take, and look how big it got, how fast. And the whole thing, which I didn't know about, it that was revealed in the doc, and and you go into it a little bit, yeah. in the film, is how his wife and him owned yeah. that mm-hmm. paper up mm-hmm. in West Ch- in Putnam yeah. County, yeah. yeah, and the the ravic that they they waged yeah. on. There's a whole. There's a. That's a no, that whole a other. Story, yeah. That's a whole. It, that's other covered movie. really well in Gabe Sherman's book. Uh, the how she um, she sort of tried to turn that paper into a, a, another mouthpiece for the conservative establishment in the middle of a pretty blue state. You yeah. Know? Uh, but that's a fascinating story too. Yeah. Absolutely. I love what Connie Britton did with her. We didn't have a huge amount of screen time for for. Beth Ailes, but um, she's a fascinating character, very, very loyal to Roger. And uh, when you get Connie Britton, you know, it's, you know, people are paying attention to her. So I'm glad. Does she still operate that paper? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. I don't, I actually don't think so, but I, you, I don't know the answer. But it's just really, it was just a really, that, that's why the, 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 it resonated with me. And so when I told Adam McKay this story, he was like, of course you wouldn't see anything <laughs> he said to me. Yeah. It was essentially, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Do you mean, what do you mean like about Meaning, what? well, the distance between what went behind closed ah. doors and what was down in, down in the Absolutely. cellar. Yeah. Is, is, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have probably known. We talked to a lot of people yeah. like that. Roger was very, look, he had a, he had a lot, he was paranoid. He was. He had a lot to hide. He was very, all very secretive about things. And unless you were really on the inner circle, it wouldn't surprise me that you didn't get up. The phone tapping I had heard buzz about. I, yeah. I was, I was like, when, when you had brought Did that you up feel, in the movie. you felt surveilled sometimes? I didn't feel surveilled. I didn't personally feel surveilled. But um, when, you, when you'd brought it up in the movie, I, I, it jogged my memory. And I was like, mm-hmm. I think I remember <laughs> hearing this. Yeah, That's one of the... And the, the way he enforced loyalty uh, and really pressed people to stick on the script. If you deviated, I from a lot of accounts, he would not only go at you directly and and confront you about it. He would have somebody leak something that almost had nothing to do with what the conflict was. If you were an anchor person, you might have some story suddenly show up about how you treat your dogs, you know, or what school your kids go. Like really weird. Stuff that he would use his his uh, public relations people to be the the enforcers, and you, again, you start to realize what an incredible thing Gretchen Carlson did to take that on. Uh, you know, uh, when nobody else was doing that, even though she was fired and then sued, she'd been collecting stuff for a solid year that she could use as hard evidence. So she was she was really going up against a, a machine, like going up against a you know a, a country with its own cia or something like that's how that's how uh, much of an underdog she was in this kind of david and goliath story 
I want to save the last uh, question for you. When your peers watch this, in in regards to the editing, what do you want them? What do you want? What would you like them to see that jumps out? I would like them to be moved by the performances and by the story. That's and um, you know, hopefully not bored along the way. And I don't think it is. But honestly, it's such a it's fun ride. It's kind of always this the same thing. Um, even on a comedy, you really want this. Of course, you want laughs, but you want people to relate to the performances. You want the people to feel like it's real. And you, when the movie's over, you want them to have something to talk about on the ride home and have it land. Have it land emotionally. It's very real. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much.